Our scripture reading today comes from Romans 12, verses 3 through 8. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith, in service, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal. The one who does acts of mercy, with cheerfulness. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This week, the Wall Street Journal featured an article of a prominent Christian leader, the president of a Christian university, a very large university who was forced to resign because of personal misconduct. You know, when I read that article, I was deeply saddened. I don't know any of the details. I don't know this person. But I'm very saddened for his family and the large university that's reeling from this scandal. As I read the article, I wondered what happened. I strongly doubt that this leader's lack of virtue and spiritual formation was the result of a lack of Bible information or that it somehow he had wavered from sound doctrine. I doubt it. And reading the article was sober to me. It was a sober reminder that even though we have much Bible information, often we lack spiritual transformation. How is it possible to know so much about the Bible and yet be so unlike Jesus? Why is a life of growing virtue and Christ-likeness so elusive to our experience? Why is lasting change often so difficult? Now, as a church family, we are going through a series we've entitled, We Can Change. And we're asking the question, can we change? And how do we change? Two weeks ago, we looked at one barrier of change. It was a cultural barrier where in our Western culture, we often emphasize the left hemisphere of our brain at the expense of the right. And we asked the question, how do we embrace a more full-brained faith? Now, last week, Pastor Andrew, unpacked God's word for us and helped us to address faulty views of the way we see the church. Pastor Andrew also pressed deeply into the metaphor of the body and the importance of the body of Christ. And we are leaning into this body metaphor in our text this morning, and we are learning this truth in deeper ways, that lasting change is not just about me, it's about we. The idea that we are embracing is that you and I cannot fully be transformed on our own. That lasting change needs more than a me. It needs we. So if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Romans chapter 12. The book of Romans is Paul's masterful treatise on the gospel. And as we enter Romans chapter 12, we want to explore more fully now verses 3 through 8. And we're going to examine 
two blinding barriers that prevent you and me from true and lasting change. These barriers center first around the way we see ourselves and secondly, how we see others. There is a peril to think too highly of ourselves, and also a peril of expecting too much from others. Let's examine the first barrier. That barrier is thinking too highly of ourselves. Now, if you have your Bible open, I'd like you to turn with me to verse 3 and listen to what Paul says. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. Now, understanding the context, let's recall that in verses 1 and 2, Paul calls us to transformation. And in this matter of transformation, we learn that new identity matters, our physical bodies matter, and our spiritual community matters. Now, in verse 3, as Paul continues his train of thought, we find here this little grammatical literary bridge. It's called a conjunction. It's translated for, or it can be translated indeed or certainly. What is going on here? Paul is progressing in his movement of thought. He's using this word to emphasize the high importance and implications and explanation that he's going to give in verses 3 through 9. So here in verses 3 through 8, Paul, notice, he emphasizes the word grace. And grace means God's unmerited favor. And notice how he focuses first on his own life. I love that. His own life of grace. And this is the backdrop he gives us to unpack the barrier of transformation lurking within the local faith community in the local church at Rome. Now, Paul explicitly gives us this barrier, and he states it this way, the barrier of thinking more highly of ourselves than we ought to think. Now, if you have your eyes in your text, you will notice that Paul repeats three times the word think. And this word think in the original language is different than the word mind in verse 2. And that's important because the emphasis in this word is not as comprehensive as the mind. It is not merely a logical process. It is a way, a comprehensive way of how a person views something. And in this case, you'll notice in the text that Paul is saying how we view ourself or how we understand our self-awareness. Now, I want us to think here as we enter this text, not only left logical process, right? That's left brain hemisphere, but think relational experiential. This is where Paul is going. Think right brain hemisphere. Now, notice the contrasting word in verse 3 of thinking rightly, or we may see the translation as sober judgment. This carries with it the idea of staying within boundaries, of not stepping outside of limits, of respecting them. And keep this in mind because Paul is describing someone who thinks too highly of themselves as stepping out of the boundaries of proper self-assessment. He gives the warning of a danger affecting all of us, and that is an overinflated self sense of importance. So what is Paul pressing into here? I think it may be helpful for us to look at two primary ways we may think too highly of ourselves. We can think too highly of ourselves through a narcissistic lens or through an individual lens. So what do I mean by narcissism? I am not using the term in a sense of a mental health diagnosis of a personality disorder, so please understand that, but more one's heart tendencies toward God and how we experience others in faith community. So simply put, but importantly put, is narcissism is an excessive interest or admiration of oneself. 
I like to think of the phrase narcissism or the word narcissism with this expansion. It's really all about me. That's narcissism. It's where one's self-absorbed inner world and relationships revolve around a very important question. Hear me carefully. It is, how am I doing? <laughs> Rather than, how am I loving? Keep that in mind. Now, the empty heart of the matter of narcissism is a distorted sense that they are much more important and better than others. Now, whether Paul called it narcissism or not, Paul knew something important, and that is an excessive admiration of oneself uniquely phrase attachment love. It compromises relational transparency and it sabotages spiritual community. In their very insightful book that is just out, Jim Wilder and Michael Hendricks give us more of an understanding here. It's called the other half of the church. And they point to narcissism in the local church as a relational disease. I think they're spot on here. They say this, when we speak of narcissists, we are talking about people who have narcissistic traits that dominate their character. Now notice what they say. Narcissists have formed unhealthy character habits for relating to others. So let's press into this a moment. People who are narcissistic can be actually the nicest people in the world. But internally, they are all about themselves. They are about promoting and projecting a particular image of themselves. They lack empathy. They have an excessive need for admiration, an inflated sense they have to be special. They often talk a great deal about themselves or their ideas or their problems, but they often also minimize the pain of others. And truth be told, they can't handle loving rebuke or correction. Why? Because they are in constant need of affirmation and protecting a particular image. Now, narcissists can be a family member, a spouse, a fellow classmate, a work colleague, a boss, a church member, a leader in a church, or yes, a pastor of a church. Think of it this way. Narcissism is like kryptonite in spiritual community. Narcissism is a great barrier to transformation. But notice also another aspect of how thinking too highly of ourselves can play out. Let's just call it individualism. And what do we mean? That God created us as individuals is really a good thing. That each of us has personal agency and responsibility is vitally important. But when we begin to see ourselves as islands of prideful self-sufficiency and we live our lives as if we are, this is not a good thing. I like to think of individualism with a phrase like this. It helps me. Uh, individualists think this way. I can change all on my own. And their MO, their modus operandi is, I got this. One way to think about this is the Lone Ranger Christian. The Lone Ranger Christian is physically and emotionally disconnected from others, from the local church community. The Lone Ranger Christian spiritual life paradigm is really Jesus and me. Now, does Jesus and me matter? Of course. But they often say they love Jesus, but they don't really like the local church. But let me just say, if we truly love Jesus, we will love what Jesus loves. And there's no question biblically that Jesus loves most his bride, the church, you and me, warts and all. And let me say this very clearly. Spiritual maturity and transformation and lasting change in your life and mine does not take place 
within the suffocating confines of a Jesus and me individualism. One of the greatest tall trees, a wonderful scholar and Christian, J.I. Packer, recently went to be with the Lord. And he pointed out in one of his writings that the evangelical faith tradition with all its strengths, and there are many, yet there remains a glaring and impoverished weakness, what he calls stilted or stunted ecclesiology. Now, ecclesiology is just a big word that describes the branch of theology that focuses on the church. While we rightly may have a high view of Jesus, and that's a good thing in our tradition, many of us have a very low view of the church. Now, both narcissism and individualism are big barriers to change. And instead of thinking too highly of oneself, Paul now advocates, let's press in here in verse 3, for this phrase, growing in sober judgment. So what does Paul mean? He means that spiritual growth and lasting transformation involves a growing self-awareness in your life and mine and a growing self-understanding of who we are. Now, in his classic book, The Knowledge of the Holy, A.W. Tozer says something so powerful in the beginning. He says, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And I think he's right. But perhaps Paul is saying that the second most important thing that comes into our mind is how we see ourselves, how we understand who we are. That is, our growing self-awareness and understanding of self matters. And without a relationship with God, and with others that have proper understanding, spiritual transformation is hindered. Paul knew something we need to all grasp, and that is that we not only grow in our understanding of God, but we need to grow in our understanding of who we are. In fact, we know now that this is how our brains are designed. And although we tend to convince ourselves otherwise, don't we? We simply do not see the world ourselves well on our own and we were never designed to. The first binding barrier for lasting change in your life and mine is a distortion of how we see ourselves. But the second distortion, more subtle, is also very blinding, and that is how we see others. Sometimes we expect too much of others, and this is a kind of toxic idealism that can infect a faith community. So let's press in a bit to the second barrier, that is expecting too much from others. Now notice if you have your Bible open and you're following along in your text, here in verses 4 and 5, Paul presses into the body metaphor of the local church community. You will notice how Paul literally and structurally emphasizes and re-emphasizes individual difference, composite diversity, and mutual interdependence of each follower of Jesus who are part of the local church he is writing to in Rome. Now at the beginning of verse 6, Paul will emphasize the many, and I want to say many, many differences in the local church. And he, preferences, or he prefaces this by saying, having gifts that differ. That's his preface, having gifts that differ. So he focuses on the diversity of gifting of individual members who live into these differences, utilize their differences for the flourishing of the whole. He'll mention gifts, right? Prophecy, service, teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, and mercy. Now, Eugene Peterson often gets it right. And he paraphrases so well Paul's words here and I want you to listen carefully. He writes, each of us finds our meaning and function as part of his body. But as a chopped off finger or cut off toe, we wouldn't amount to much, would we? So since we find ourselves fashioned into all these excellently formed and marvelously functioned parts in Christ's body, 
Let's just go ahead. Let's be what we were made to be without enviously or pridefully comparing ourselves with each other or trying to be something we aren't. Now, Eugene Peterson, I think, picks up something that Paul is implying more subtly in this text. And that is trying to be something we aren't or expecting someone else to be who they are not, who God did not design or empower them to be. We know from what Paul says now, following in verses 3 through 9, as well as several other New Testament texts, that this diversity of gifts, <laughs> these diversity, diverse ways we are made and how we see the world, led to very different perspectives in the first century church. <laughs> to conflict, yes. To disappointment, yes. To unmet expectations, yes. To disunity and even envy. And we see in the New Testament, a spiritual community with all its diversity of gifts, perspectives, and levels of spiritual maturity is what? It's often a messy deal. I love the story of the guy stranded on a desert island. The guy is uh, actually found a couple years later. The rescuers notice he has built three huts, little hut-like structures. And they say to him, hey, we're curious, guy. What, why the heck the three huts? And he responds, well, that's simple. First hut is where I live. That's my house. The second hut right there is where I go for worship. It's my church. And they ask him, what about the third house? The third hut. He looks at him and says, well, that's where I used to go to church. Isn't that true? I mean, let's be honest. Even if we were a church of one, we would fall short of our own expectations. A professor of mine used to say to us young idealistic seminarians, if you ever find a perfect church, don't join it. You'll ruin it. That's exactly right. Unbiblical idealism is toxic in a church. And the local church community is inevitably messy. This is why Paul will so strongly teach us in the rest of chapter 12 the importance of loving others authentically and with familial, yes, familial affection. Paul will commend the hard relational work, the loyal love, the spiritual commitment of living in harmony with one another in spite of our difference, in spite of our brokenness, in spite of different perspectives. Now, what we see here, Paul is saying God designed local church to include people not like us. Followers of Jesus who are not only different in their abilities and giftedness, but yes, who often see things differently from us, whose life experiences may be very different than us, who may look very different than us whose taste or music styles or voting patterns may be different than us. You see, diversity is a great thing. We use that word a lot today, don't we? In fact, it's a God thing. It's also a local church thing. But diversity brings complexity, and that means it's a messy thing. Here's where the rub comes in, isn't it? We can expect too much of others, and we can view our local church through a cultural bias or a perfectionistic lens. Now, hear me carefully. In Jesus' already not yet kingdom, at least not fully yet, there is a lot in each of us, in me and in you, and in our local church community, that is not fully yet. We are masterpieces, yes, in the making 
but I am and you are and all of us are still a piece of work. That's the way it is. Unbiblical idealism, often pridefully justified in our individual preference and in our cultural framework and our self-centered consumerism, wreaks havoc in the local church and it greatly hinders spiritual growth. Martyred pastor German, or German pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote a brilliant book on spiritual community. It's called Life Together. I commend it to you. It's the best book ever written on it. And Bonhoeffer addresses the peril of expecting too much from others, of assuming an unbiblical visionary ideal of local church community. He writes, God hates visionary dreaming. The man who fashions a visionary ideal of community demands that it be realized by God, by others, and by himself. And Bonhoeffer goes on, when his ideal picture is destroyed, he sees the community going to smash. So he becomes first an accuser of his brothers, then an accuser of God, and finally the despairing accuser of himself. In many ways, I think the local church is like marriage. And maybe you're single, maybe you're married, I don't know, but if you've ever been married or you're going to be married, li listen to me carefully. This doesn't surprise those of us who are married, right? Because God designed marriage and the church in a covenantal arrangement. Marriage begins with an idyllic picture of one's spouse. But then layer by layer by layer by layer, <laughs> it is peeled off before our eyes, sometimes in astonishing ways. As we see the quirks, <laughs> struggles, imperfections, selfishness, sin, brokenness of the one we have committed our life to. Inevitably, sometimes quickly, there is a collision of idealism and reality. Yet it is in this often disillusioning collision where a new, more hopeful realism emerges, where a greater intimacy grows, where a deeper, more mature love develops. And yes, a greater joy is experienced. This is similar to how we can experience the local church community. In spite of our differences, disappointments, and other members, and sometimes church leaders, the messiness of doing life together in Christ requires our unwavering commitment to each other. And this not only honors God, but this is one of the greatest catalysts for your spiritual growth and mine. Now let me say a few things about that. I'm not saying there are never times we need to check out of a faith community. There can be abuse, a lack of leadership, moral or financial integrity, or there can be, and it is very common today, cultural accommodation that leads to false doctrine. But I am saying that even a healthy local church community can at times be messy and will be messy. And hear me carefully, the messiness of local church community is part of how God grows and transforms us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I recognize that some of us have been wounded by narcissistic spiritual leaders. Some of us have had difficult and even traumatic experiences with past church experience. And I am truly sorry about that. It breaks my heart. But local church commitment and community is not an option for the apprentice of Jesus. It is not an option. And at Christ Community, we are anything but a perfect people or place. But I trust and pray we are a safe place for you to grow in your faith in Jesus. We are apprentices of Jesus, 
living into our values, wholeheartedly committed to remaining relational with each other, and to increasingly know each other and be known by us, by others. So how do we grow together in Christ? Let me highlight just a couple thoughts for your reflection and application. How do we change together? First, we need to embrace a posture of humility. Growing Christ-like humility is the most potent antidote to narcissism or narcissistic tendencies. Jesus invites us into his yoke of apprenticeship, and when we are his apprentice, we learn from him. And he says he is gentle and what? Humble of heart. As we follow in his steps, our spiritual growth is marked by increasing gentleness and humility. One of the practices of spiritual disciplines that combats our narcissistic tendencies, often fueled by applause and admiration, is the discipline of secrecy. I commend it to you. The spiritual discipline of secrecy means we do acts of service or express generosity for others that do not draw attention to ourselves, that nobody else knows but God and us. The discipline of secrecy is one of the greatest disciplines Jesus teaches that our right hand does not know what our left hand is doing. And Paul reminds the church at Philippi to look to Jesus, to take the form of a servant, and to do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility of mind count others more significant than ourselves. How might you embrace the discipline of secrecy in your life? Secondly, how do we extend grace to others? Extending grace to others in your daily life at home, at work, is one of the best antidotes to idealism. Now, grace is not merely a doctrine we embrace. It is a life-giving reality we experience in an embodied way. Grace opens the door, unlike anything else I know, to be empathetic and not judgmental or condemning of others. Grace embodied helps us to listen well with heart, mind, and body. Now, I am not saying, hear me carefully, that extending grace is somehow that we take sin lightly or that we wink at disobedience or that we endorse a licentious cheap grace. I'm not saying that. But extending grace and receiving grace from others is profoundly transformational. I remember seeing a friend who had a sign in their office. It simply said, breathe grace. I love that. But how do we do it? I want to suggest to you a spiritual exercise I often use in my own life. And it's a wonderful way of getting ready for your day. Just five minutes of attentiveness. Think of breathing as inhale and exhale. First, inhale. So take a slow breath. Fix your whole tension for a moment on God's grace extended to you. You might quote to yourself Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, for by grace we say through faith, or some text. Remind yourself of the good news of the gospel. That because of what Christ has done for you on no merit of your own, You are not under condemnation. You are part of God's family. You are God's beloved son or daughter. You are safe and secure in him. You are deeply loved and pleasing to him. And imagine our Lord delighting in you so much that he walks into the room. And as he walks into the room, he joyfully looks at you with a smile. Inhale God's grace. But also as you do, exhale. Bring to mind those who you will interact with that day. You may think of those who are on your work schedule or your school schedule or your plans for the day. Often, a liturgy that's so helpful in connecting Sunday to Monday is to pray through your schedule or your plans for a day. 
Think of your spouse, think of your family members, neighbors, classmates, work colleagues, fellow members of Christ's community, and offer a prayer for them and for your day ahead. What are some ways you are extending grace to them? We can grow together if we embrace a posture of humility, if we extend grace to others, and lastly, if we remember our new group identity. Living more fully into our new group identity and spiritual community is one of the most powerful antidotes to toxic individualism. Now, we are going to press much more into that next week, but let me, let me simply ask you, what steps are you taking this week? Yes, even in the midst of the challenges of our present COVID-19 world, to know and to be known by others who call Christ's community their church home. Lasting change is not just about me, it's about we. So let's grow together. Our Christian faith is a communal faith. And one of the ways Jesus reminds us of that is he invites us on a regular basis to share in Holy Communion, his Lord's Supper. Holy Communion is a unique reminder, not only what Christ has done for me, but what Christ has done for us. So if you have not already, you may want to pause this and gather your communion elements. And if you have your communion elements in front of you, remember what Jesus said. This is my body broken for you. This is the cup of my new covenant. Do this in remembrance of me.